The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Very brave of you to be out on this kind of a night. I take it you're not Vikings fans. <laughs> so uh, for those who are relatively new to Common Ground, We've been, uh, I've been doing a series of talks on the Buddhist teachings on emptiness, and there is a complimentary text, those who would like it. Guy Armstrong wrote recently a book called Emptiness, a Practical Guide for Meditators, quite nice. And uh, chapter nine is on this intersection of the Buddhist teachings on karma and these teachings on emptiness. So I want to talk about that tonight. And it's interesting because they, they appear, on the surface at least, a little contradictory. And uh, so generally, the sort of simple understanding of karma, we're often misunderstanding that because in the West, you know, it's sort of part of our, our vocabulary. But we misunderstand it. We interpret the idea of karma in a personal way. So we think like if things are really good, then I did something good in the past. So I sort of deserve the good conditions that I have right now. And if I'm experiencing really difficult circumstances, then the sort of superficial idea of karma is that I must have done something bad in the past, and then this is the fruit of that bad action. And it kind of seems like that's maybe what the Buddha is saying, but it's really too simplistic. Karma is, in a way, more simple, which is just saying that when we observe things as they are, when we use awareness and we look at the body, we look at the mind, we look at the activity of the present moment, we see that it's conditional, it's lawful, that this moment conditions the next moment. Right. So that's pretty obvious. I mean, intellectually, we all kind of get that anyway. And so... It's just really living in accordance with that. And then as that understanding deepens that we live in a lawful universe, it's conditional, not necessarily in a linear way. If I say this, then this is going to happen. But if I say this other thing, then this other thing's going to happen. It's not like we can predict or it's um, sort of written in stone in that way. It's just that this moment arises because of causes and conditions, right? Like how this is being experienced by me right now, it has a lot to do with what's happened before. A lot to do with so many causes and conditions. Whatever reality you're knowing right now, that experience you're having is a conditional arising. It isn't just sort of coming from outer space and then this is my experience right now, right? But like the way my mind is relating right now or the way my mind is creating meaning right now, that's a lawful unfolding of the way my mind created meaning a few minutes ago or the way my mind understood things, the way my mind framed things. And then as as that understanding that we 
live in a lawful, conditional universe, as that deepens and we pay attention to it, it becomes clear and clear that the quality of the mind, the motivation of the mind, the presence of greed, the presence of aversion, the presence of goodwill and kindness, that that motive force, that particular way of relating, makes an impression on the mind. So in, in, the, in terms of what am I setting in motion right now, we really see that if I'm relating with aversion right now, I'm planting very particular seeds that are going to affect the next moment and the moment after that and the moment after that. If I'm relating in a kindly way in a, with patience, with a quality of forgiveness, with a quality of interest, a more pure, open-minded interest, that affects that itself, that way of relating, that motivation, that frame affects the next moment of this mind, right? So we start to feel appropriately, not in a heavy way. A lot of times people think, well, this is a heavy responsibility because all of a sudden the mind begins to understand it matters how I'm relating. And then we feel, oh, God, not only do I have my to-do list, but I also have to take responsibility for how I'm relating moment by moment by moment by moment, every single damn moment for the rest of my life. <coughs> and it can feel a little overwhelming. But you see, it's, we don't have to. You can continue to relate in a kind of random way or just act out your personality habits, whatever they are. If you're grumpy, then you just let that continue to manifest. So it's, it's really a privilege that we have, like as we understand that intention matters, motivation matters, the way my mind is relating matters. It's just kind of like icing's on the cake because I can continue to be a grump the rest of my life or I can see that when the mind is grumpy, when the mind gets identified with being a grump, acts out being a grump, then this, these kinds of seeds get planted the, you know, my life, the experiences that I experience, then get shaped by that mind that is being conditioned by being grumpy. But when something else is there, like a more pure interest that mindfulness allows us, where I see there's grumpiness. And because I'm being intimate with the grumpiness, and I see it's a kind of constricted state, emotional state, there's some tenderness there, like, oh, honey, you're grumpy. That's not, that's not very pleasant, and I care about that. And because I realize that acting out the grumpiness is not only planting negative or unpleasant seeds for myself, but also for everybody around me, I nimbly, or as I can, skillfully as I can, modify, try something else, like being forgiving or being patient with my grumpiness or making having a sense of humor about my grumpiness or strategically paying attention to other objects in the present moment that modify the experience of being grumpy. You know, when we're grumpy, we tend to look at things, pay attention to things that reinforce being grumpy. 
that if I know that that's happening because there's mindfulness, then I can pay attention to other objects that don't reinforce the grumpiness, but maybe uh, evoke a different kind of emotion or way of relating, right? So this is the teaching on karma. Intention matters. Motivation matters. The way my mind is relating right now affects my mind in the next moment. Because the way I'm relating right now is the conditioning force for the mind that's going to arise in the next moment. Right? So we're, we're literally setting emotion in the future by relating the way we're relating right now, skillfully or unskillfully. Because it's that mind that's relating this way that is shaping the next moment of mind and the way that mind relates. Now, the way I'm relating right now, like the impulse to relate a particular way, that tendency comes out of the past. But there's really nothing I can do about that because those tendencies have been laid down in the past. So in the present moment, it's too late to wish, boy, I'm inclined to be grumpy, but I wish I weren't inclined to be grumpy. But it's too late because that tendency to relate with grumpiness is already laid down by what happened in the past, and that's done. That momentum or that force in the personality, let's say, it's already been set in motion. But what can happen in this moment is there can be wisdom awareness that goes, oh yeah, here's that tendency to be grumpy. I can't not have that tendency to be grumpy, but I can see it with wisdom and awareness, that wise present moment awareness that goes, oh yeah, that's that tendency to be grumpy. It's not personal, but it's there, right? It's arising out of innumerable past causes and conditions. And it's showing up in this moment. You know how I know there's past causes and conditions? Because it wouldn't be showing up in this moment unless there were. Because I've watched and the world is lawful. So if I'm grumpy or if I'm defensive, if I have a lot of shame or if I have a lot of pride or if I think I'm better than or worse than or even the same as, There were causes for that. It doesn't mean I'm good or bad. It just means we totally accept what shows up because we know if it's showing up, it's supposed to show up. Does that make sense? So this is also part of this understanding of karma. So the interesting question in terms of the Buddhist teachings is, so how does this relate to the Buddhist teachings on emptiness. So let me just review those, those teachings briefly because it's been a couple of weeks since we've looked at this topic. So emptiness isn't saying that nothing's happening. It just means that when the mind is stable, a lot of clear, stable awareness, wisdom, then the mind realizes that moment to moment to moment, what's here is just this experience of something being known. Like this moment right now that each of us, you know, it's different for each of us. So the experience of your life right now, when you're being really clear and honest, 
is just something being known. That's all one can say about any moment of your life experience, right? There's something being known. It's seeing is being known or thinking is being known or touching, sensation is being known, sound is being known. And you may think, well, no, no, I got a whole life here and I have a past, something's going to happen in the future. But that's just thinking being known. And if there's some ache in your heart when you hear me say that, that's an ache sensation being known. So emptiness is really the deepening of that understanding so that the mind, the wisdom of the mind understands that this moment is empty of anything other than something being known. Does that make sense? Now, it, it may not make sense in terms of like understanding it in its depth, but just on an intellectual level, the Buddha is not trying to make some metaphysical statement that what we experience isn't really true or real or something like that. You know, like sometimes in spiritual circles, and it's really interesting, you know, people will say, you know, this is just a dream. Because when you're dreaming at night, it seems real. This seems real. Lectern seems real. Body seems real. All of you out there, I bet if I reach a little further, I touch Jeremy, you know, and it's like, I'm sure he's real because I'm touching something. But that could just be a dream, too, because dreams seem real when we're in the dream. So a lot of people think that the Buddhist teachings on emptiness is he's saying it's all a dream. It's all essentially empty. But he's not going there. He's not saying that that's not true. He's just not going there with the teachings on emptiness. He's basically analyzing, using his own mind to analyze his subjective experience of life, of his reality, subjectively, which is the only experience we can ever know. We can only we only have our subjective experience of this, of life, of reality, right? And he's just analyzing that directly for what it is in terms of being awake or being aware of his subjective experience and realize that if one trains one mind to see, to frame one's experience in this very simple honest, straightforward way, this is being known. And, you know, so he uses the six ways we know the world through thought, mental activity, or cognition, through sight, through sound, through smell, and taste, and touch. These are the only six ways that the world is known. So in any moment, it's some combination or any one of these six things being known. And the experience of being me or a human being is empty of anything other than that. Now here's the interesting thing between karma, the teachings on karma, waking up that intention matters, waking up to the lawfulness of our experience, one moment conditioning the next, and the teachings on emptiness, that this moment is empty of anything other than this is being known, when we bring them together, we really see how they support each other. There's a famous teaching I mentioned this morning in the talk um, 
from Padmasambhava, one of the well-known Buddhist teachers of long ago who brought the Buddhist teachings from northern India up into Tibet. Maybe the ninth century, I'm forgetting what century he lived. But anyway, one uh, teaching that's attributed to him is something like, although my view is as vast as the sky, right? so he's pointing to his understanding, his waking up to the truth of emptiness, that it's just this being known. There's nothing outside of that. So that, that awakening to the, or the understanding of emptiness, it really strips away the habit of attachment, the habit of identifying, because the mind realizes it's just this being known, that it doesn't refer back to me or mine. So the mind stays very simple. It's like this, this is being known, this is being known. And it doesn't construct a lot of meaning involving me and mine and what I see as good or what I see as bad or you. Or It doesn't inhabit, it isn't confused by dualistic thoughts. It doesn't mean it doesn't have dualistic thoughts. You could still, you could have a conversation and say that I prefer ice cream to hot dogs, you know. So that's sort of dualistic. But the wisdom in the mind would understand thinking is being known, seeing is being known, hearing is being known. But it doesn't prevent someone from participating in life. So he says, although my view is as vast as the sky, the mind never forgetting it's so simple, just this being known, my attention to karma, to the lawfulness, to the truth that how the mind is relating matters. The kinds of seeds the mind is planting by how it relates, the motivation that's present, it matters. My attention to karma is as fine as a grain of barley flour. It's a really refined attention, really subtle. Having a lot of respect for the kind of seeds, the kind of um, intentions or dispositions that we're watering by acting, relating in certain ways. Because the shadow, like when the understanding of emptiness is superficial and a little off, then the shadow is, oh, it's just this being known. Nobody's here. So it doesn't matter if I take something that's not mine. It doesn't matter if I insult Don or if I, if I do this thing or that thing because it's all empty of anything but this being known. So the shadow of the understanding of emptiness is I don't have to care about karma, about what seeds are being planted, what dispositions, what way of relating is being acted out right now because it's empty of me and mine, right? So that's the shadow. And the shadow of karma, like if you really get karma, is 
everything matters. Like even my body language could be triggering for some of you out there. Or if I use a word that you don't understand or that you don't like, and, and then I've dug a little hole, right? And I have a little karmic fruit that I'm upsetting you. Everything matters. You know, it's like, oh, I've got money in the bank. I could be using... So the shadow of karma is we get really tight because we think everything matters to me and I want to be good. I don't want anybody to judge me or I don't want any karmic baggage. I don't want to go to hell. So I want to do everything right, but it's a real personal trip. So then karma starts to feel really heavy. That's the shadow of karma. That's misunderstanding karma. And then you start to get a sense why it's so useful to bring the two together. Because emptiness, the understanding, the deepening, you know, it's a gradual developing insight for people who practice. Reflecting on the Buddhist teachings, bringing the Buddhist teachings right directly into our experience, meditating with that, these teachings, then the insight into emptiness starts to gradually, slowly deepen become clearer and clearer. Same with the insight into karma, really studying how the mind is relating, really getting a sense of the seeds that are getting planted, like if there's a little greediness in the mind, then what gets, what impression does that make in my heart so that in the next moment, I'm the person who was greedy in the previous moment. So then I, because I'm aware, I'm paying attention with mindfulness, I see then, okay, now, Having been greedy in the previous moment, this is who I am right now. This is the way my mind is right now. And then, because I'm aware, I'm sensing, oh yeah, this is not the kind of mind I want. So being greedy in the previous moment, I'm moving in a direction I don't want to move in. It's called being unskillful. Same with aversion or hate or, you know, whatever unwholesome intention or motivation or frame that I was relating with, if it actually is having negative consequences, then that person, if they're mindful, they'll see, this isn't the direction I want to go. This isn't the kind of mind I want to set in motion. Right? Same with planting wholesome seeds, where the wisdom in the mind said, honey, I think you should restrain from saying what you're inclined to say. And so we restrain ourselves. And then in the next moment, this is the mind that in the previous moment restrained itself from acting out its aversion. And there's a kind of a, a light, good feeling of having in the previous moment held back, right? Or maybe in the previous moment you spoke truth to power. You're, you're impulse was to be afraid to do what needed to be done. But you didn't believe that voice, and you s said what needed to be said. And so the next moment, this is the mind that was courageous, and it feels like this. And so right then and there, wisdom awareness should notice, oh, this is the direction. This feels right. This is wholesome. Right? So the deepening understanding of emptiness really helps us uh, take responsibility moment by moment by moment to the seeds that are getting planted 
without being overwhelmed with the sense of responsibility, as if there is a Mark who is burdened, weighed down by having to be responsible moment by moment by moment, what emotions, what attitudes, what qualities are there, right? Because emptiness doesn't personalize that vigilance. So then the mind can be really vigilant, really wholehearted, really caring to the nth degree to be living for the benefit of all beings without it being a big ego trip. Oh, poor me. I'm living for the benefit of all beings. What a burden. You know, kind of that image of Atlas with the world on his shoulders, you know, from I think is a Greek mythology. And here's the other way. Karma, the deepening understanding of karma, really supports the maturing insight into emptiness. Because it's easy to start getting an intellectual understanding of emptiness, but unless you start engaging the messy world of relationship, of social justice, of having to earn a living, dealing with aging parents, raising kids, falling in love, Because that's where emptiness gets interesting, you know, to kind of be engaged with the messy, complicated twists and turns of human existence. To experience loss, for example, or to experience romantic love or sexual lust or... um, to be involved in some power dynamic at work or you know, experiencing some oppression, some sexism or some uh, racism, or to see yourself being a racist or a sexist in some way, and to see that that's just something being known. Right? That's how emptiness informs karma, And that's how karma supports emptiness. It's like to be challenged to see that without personalizing it. And this is how we really heal our own heart and heal the world. It's really this dynamic. And in a way, these are the two expressions of wisdom that the Buddha taught. In in some ways we usually lead with a deepening understanding of karma, usually starting by taking it personally. Like, it matters what I'm doing. It matters what I say. And so we we start getting a little tight, but in a good way, about cleaning up our act, living more harmonious, taking responsibility, making amends for the mistakes we've made in the past, being really committed to not setting emotion harm, not taking what isn't ours, being really careful around our sexual activity because it's so easy to cause harm in that arena of life, really watching our speech, idle, even idle speech, speech, you know, gossip, ways of putting people down where we're pretending to be nice, but we're really in an underhanded way kind of putting them down, 
but it all feels like a burden. But usually then the deepening of insight into emptiness starts to catch up. And that commitment to living in harmony, that commitment to living with more integrity, more sort of attention to ethics, and the kind of reverberations we keep setting emotion around us by our actions, our, even our thoughts, and certainly our words. But as that insight into emptiness, it's like then it becomes, it's like we, we actually start in a funny way looking forward to complicated, messier places in life. Because we have deeper and deeper faith that it's all empty. So we, we don't, we're not afraid to sort of see our racial biases manifesting, right? Because we know that this commitment to non-harming is a cause for happiness. And the only thing we should be afraid of is what we're not seeing. We don't need to be afraid of what we're seeing because that's what we need to do. We need to see it. We need to see the tendencies of the mind. It's not personal. That's the, how the emptiness really informs the, our actions, our speech, our thoughts, right? Because we, we're not afraid to see it because we're not personalizing it. So if I have biases, if I you know, have been conditioned by a culture that's patriarchal, then that's going to express itself. So to see it means the mind can understand it. Oh, yeah, sometimes it's like this. Sometimes the mind frames things in this way. Sometimes the mind is inclined to mansplain. or Is that how you say it? Mansplaining? <laughs> right? Or to sort of dominate or to whatever. Oh, yeah. And that's how it is, right, in this moment, that impulse. And there's no choice without seeing that. But when the mind sees it, sees the intention, sees the motivation, it also, in a sense, tastes how constricting, how heavy it is. And so the letting go, the not acting it out, the refraining from acting it out, depends on seeing it. There's no healing of these unwholesome tendencies of the mind without seeing them. It's not like we shed all this conditioning, this impersonal but very harmful conditioning, habit energies, without seeing them. We have to actually see them in their living colors. And it's the emptiness that allows us to see them. It's just so interesting in my relationship with my partner, who's a longtime practitioner, one of the teachers here, co-founder of Common Ground, Win Fricky. And, you know, because we've both been practicing a long time, you know, we're still human beings who have been conditioned by culture, you know, and have our own dispositions, own tendencies, a lot of it not pretty, you know, not necessarily wholesome. And then in the churning of an intimate relationship, that stuff tends to express itself, right? Some of you know this. But... There's just less shame and embarrassment about doing stupid, foolish things. I mean, it's still there to some degree, of course, because more and more, 
through the years of practice, the mind understands, well, that's how it is sometimes. Of course, this is going to express itself at times. Of course. And it's kind of a real privilege, a real something I'm grateful for in our relationship that we're much more comfortable in this messy place. There's just a lot more space. We give each other a lot more space so that we can see what's there to see and to see what it is. It's impersonal. It's empty. It's just something being known. Mark is being childish. That is something being known. Mark is being domineering. That is something being known. Mark is being defensive. That's just something being known. It creates this space then where the mind, because it's not wasting its effort with shame, self-hatred, or blaming the other person so we don't have to feel self-hatred, right? whatever the sort of unwholesome dance might otherwise be, now the mind just has space because it, it's not personalizing whatever's showing up on the scene in the argument and the dynamic. It just sees it as something being known. And then, only then, really, we can take responsibility for karma, like do a better job at refraining from doing what we shouldn't be doing because it's going to be planting unwholesome seeds and doing what can be done, planting wholesome seeds of forgiveness, of humor, of making amends, of starting over, or whatever you know, is the expression of letting go and the expression of compassion and kindness. Maybe I'll leave it here. I'm guessing that, you know, in your own experience, this integration of the deepening understanding of emptiness. And again, don't make emptiness some abstract thing. It's gaining confidence that any moment, including this moment, in its essence, is just something being known. And that that's complete. That moment of recognizing, oh, it's just this being known, that's not superficial. That encapsulates the entirety of what's happening. This is being known. And in any sense that, no, that's not sufficient, or that's doubt being known. Right? And that karma is just the simple recognition that how the mind is relating, framing things right now, creates the conditions the mind that's going to be knowing the next moment. It sets in motion something. That's what karma means. So any questions about what I've said thus far or comments from your own practice? Yeah, and Kermit and others, point the mic close at your mouth like this. All the way back. Um, I'm having some trouble reconciling meta with the concept of emptiness. It seems like the the practice of meta, you know, the well wishing, is it's constructing something on top of the or beyond what the uh, you know something being known thing is, and it seems personal too. Yeah. You know, may my own may my heart feel at ease or. You know those those kind of statements and 
things. They seem like they're constructed things stuck on top of emptiness or goes beyond. And it seems to relate to self, too. So yeah. maybe you can help me with that. Yeah. So in case people don't know, the word metta is the Pali word for basic goodness, often translated as loving kindness. But it, it is a more, yeah, it, it really is just about this recognition. If we look with real sincerity, real honesty, we will be able to recognize, especially the more you do it, you'll be able to recognize that even right now, in an ordinary moment, the experience of basic goodness is there already. <clears throat> so in a way, you're right, Kermit, that it's a bit of a construction. So it has, can have, for sure, a sense of self. I'm constructing the sense of a me that has loving kindness, that is friendly, that is good, right? But even though that can be a skillful means, sort of involving a sense of self that is friendly, that is good, that is loving, that is caring, actually what we're doing is using any skillful means that allows the mind that knows to recognize what is true, that there is a basic goodness. So although we might, it might initially involve a sense of a me who loves my cat, what we're going toward is a simple, a more simple direct recognition that love is being known. This particular emotion of love is being known. This particular quality of love is being known. So it's an exclusive, like when I'm talking about it, emptiness, I always made it more general. Something's being known. The object doesn't matter. But with loving kindness practice, it's an exclusive meditation. So we're still being mindful, but we're intentionally being mindful of only one thing. However, that, that capacity to be loving can be experienced in this moment, we pay attention to that one thing, right? And then again in the next moment. So it does feel like there's a somebody choosing to pay attention to only one thing. But the more we do that loving-kindness practice, it becomes the habit of the mind. So now you don't need to construct the idea of a Kermit, me, who wants to notice the loving quality of the heart. Because now it's the new habit of the mind to just be relating to whatever's going on in the moment in a friendly way, in a kind and caring way. So loving kindness practice, instead of uh, me being loving, it's really a strategic act of uprooting the tendency to relate with aversion and fear. And if done enough, it just becomes second nature to be relating to whatever's going on in a more friendly, appreciative, kind, and compassionate way. But it does, can at least, feel forced, or at least, like you described it, I'm trying to do something here. I'm try I, personally, am trying to make something happen here. So initially, it feels that way. But there should be moments, like especially when the practice has a head of steam, 
where it really feels natural. The love feels very organic, and it has its own tendency to replicate itself. You doing it starts to fall into the background, and it just seems like the movement of love and that basic friendliness and goodness of the heart, it doesn't feel constructed. It doesn't feel like somebody wants it to happen, is making it happen. It feels like a natural expression of the mind or heart in that moment. So the heart qualities then are just something being known at that point then? Or? Yeah. Yeah, because getting out of the way. So instead of trying to do loving kindness, in a sense you would say you are loving kindness. There is loving kindness, right? Because at that point, trying to be loving would be extra and in the way. It would be sort of clunky and in the way. So that's why, like, even in more of a, um, you know, in, in terms of instructions, at that point, using phrases, like a lot of people who, you know, if you haven't done the loving-kindness practice, a lot of people who do it use phrases. Like, if they're bringing their cat to mind or a good friend of mine, may your heart be happy and at ease. You know, they might just repeat that every few seconds to kind of keep their heart in the ballpark of loving-kindness. May you all be happy and at ease, you know? And I sort of try, do my best to rest in a more natural sense of loving kindness. But then because my mind doesn't have that much momentum for loving kindness, I'd say it again. May you all be happy and at ease. But when the feeling is real, then I drop the phrases. And I'm just letting that natural upwelling the heart, like a radiant heart that just cares and appreciates and feels friendly, feels like it belongs, everything belongs. I can say yes to everything because I care about it all. Then with that feeling of love, is self, self-replicating. Nobody needs to be loving. Nobody needs to ignite it or reinforce it. And then... The practice at that point is trusting the love or resting in the love instead of trying to do it. No more the doer. Yeah, thanks, Kermit, for bringing that up. What else comes to mind from the talk tonight? Yeah, Jeremy, you want to pass the mic over? Over here. So um, one of the things that came to mind while you were talking about karma and about the reframing um, our intentions and about um, planting good seeds was a a practice that I came across um, maybe about a year ago on a blog. And it was was a a simple change of word uh, from I have to to I get to. Um, And I'll give you some examples. Um, Like I hate doing laundry, um, and so I I sometimes find myself that you know the very natural energy that just because of years of experience of me saying I hate doing laundry, uh, like as soon as I think laundry I get like ugh, and so um, so but this this statement I get to do it suddenly opened up this huge, um, like window of generosity or not generosity sorry gratitude because then I was thinking okay well. I'm physically able, I can carry my stuff, 
you know, down the hall and whatever, I can lift it. I have the money to, to put coins in the machine, you know, and, and to buy stuff. And look at how many shirts I have. Like so many people have one shirt or two shirts. I've got 23, you know, and like, um, so, I mean, it's just a way of like reframing or, or, or grocery shopping. I don't like, you know, um, and so I get to go and this embarrassment of riches that, we have available to us at our fingertips that so many people don't have. It's just a, a another skillful way maybe of relating to things and reframing. So. Yeah, and these kinds of reframings that Jeremy's talking about, this is the natural fruit. You may not describe it this way to yourself, but from a Buddhist point of view, it's a natural fruit of the organic deepening insight into emptiness. Because if... Jeremy didn't have a gradual deepening insight into emptiness, that idea that I hate doing the laundry, the mind would really cling to that as me, as mine. Like, I'm the one who really hates doing laundry. So even if he tried some clever, new-agey thing like shifting from I, I have to to I get to, the force of habit of being identified with I hate it it wouldn't put up with that, like, I get to, yeah, right. But because that insight is deepening, the mind has some kind of degrees of freedom there. Like, it doesn't really believe, it says, because of the moment of habit, I hate doing laundry. Like, even you said that, at the, that was what you led with for the group tonight. You know, but part, you, we could tell, part of the mind doesn't believe that story. Because the mind realizes when it says, I hate doing laundry, that's just something being known. And it's empty of a Jeremy that's back there who actually does hate doing laundry. That doesn't exist. What exists is that thought, I hate doing laundry, and it's being known. That's all that happens in that moment. There isn't anything else. It's empty of the actual Jeremy who hates doing laundry. There's just the thought, I hate doing laundry, and it's being known. Yeah. Thanks, Jeremy, for bringing that up. Other thoughts? Yeah, Tom, and then one, Laura first, and then to Tom. Hi. Um, the talk made me think of something I experienced like a week or two ago, and I don't remember what I was thinking about, but I, I don't know, probably just something kind of ordinary and kind of realizing like how positive I am <laughs> just like naturally without trying. That's like my default. And then, and then kind of realizing, oh, that's delusion. And then I was thinking about like, quote unquote, like a realistic perspective. But even that is sort of delusion because it has like, at least the way I saw it, it has even a little bit of an angle, like this is realistic, or this is like the realistic perspective, and kind of seeing that, like the karma of that. So what I kind of felt after that was really kind of the only go-to thing <laughs> is going back to like, this is being known. And like the basics of the, like the senses and all of that. 
Isn't it amazing that it works? <laughs> I mean, it, the thing is, it doesn't make sense that it works until you do it. And then you really see that, that simple approach, this is how it is now, this is being known, it really changes. It really undermines the suffering of attachment. Yeah, thanks for sharing, Laura. Tom's next. Yeah, I have a sort of a similar story, but um, I had a friend visiting me from Atlanta in um, in in September, and it, and we went to a wedding out in Wisconsin, and it was it, it seemed like it was a lot of fun, and and um, you know I, I I sort of wasn't engaged in in a lot of it, but I I kind of had a nice time and everything, and then and then about a month later, I got a letter from this friend of mine and. She said some really awful things about me, <laughs> and I and at first I was really pissed. You know, I was just like, "What? It, what?" You know, and it took me a, about a week. I was just kind of grumping around about it, and I thought, "I put this person up, and then I get this letter." You know, I, you know who writes a letter, anyways? But um, <laughs> you know, it was like, "Wow, it really meant something—a real letter." You know. I get one a year, and so it was just a lousy one. And I said, so I, I mentioned it to a, one of my coffee shop buddies, and um, they said, um, "Well, get rid of her." I mean, <laughs> that was awful. I just wouldn't have a friend like that. And I was like, "Oh, well, wait a minute. I, I've almost I've known her forty years. I mean, wait a minute." I love her. She's great. <laughs> so I wrote a letter back. And then I suddenly realized, oh, she's right, actually. <laughs> <laughs> that was the thing about the emptiness. Yeah, I, yeah. I just went, oh, actually, I am that way sometimes, you know. And she nailed it. <laughs> and I thought, wow. So I wrote her. And I said, congratulations, you hit the nail right on the head. And, I, and then I got to apologize. And she brought me, uh, Friday night we got together, she was in town, and she brought this like, wonderful little gift in a, ba in a bag with hearts on it. And ugh, I love her. <laughs> you know, but we just had a really bad moment. And it was over. We, almost, we really didn't have to talk about it. Yeah. It was great. So, mm, thanks for sharing that, Tom. We have time for maybe one more person. Anybody else like to share with the group? Yeah, please, Nancy. That story kind of makes me think of... Is it it's not on loud, but it, we okay. can hear you better with it. Okay. Um, so your explanation of karma made a lot of sense to me. Like, it felt really logical. And it's not, I think, my perception of karma, which is more mystical. Um, so I guess my question is like, I find myself often saying, oh, I have karma with that person, and I don't even really know what I mean by that. But what, do you, what are your thoughts on that? Like, did he have karma with that woman to work out, and they did it? You know, or like, how does that, how does that work with yeah. relationships? Because when we say something like, oh, there's karma, there, I got a lot of karma here, you know. It's one of these karmic knots in my life. And if I don't solve it with this person, I'll, I'll have to do it with someone else. It will be the same dynamic somewhere else that I'll have. So I might as well do it here. So what we're really saying is that 
in this particular situation, like with this particular person, stuff that, and we may not have any idea where it's come from, but stuff comes to the surface, right? Intense stuff or complicated stuff. So, like I said earlier when I was talking about karma, we don't really have a say what shows up in the moment. But we have to be responsible for it because it's shown up. It showed up. It's here. And because we've been observing that things are lawful, we know it's not a mistake. It's not like somebody made a mistake and we're feeling a lot of anxiety, but we're not actually supposed to be feeling a lot of anxiety. If we're feeling anxiety, there are lawful reasons why we're feeling anxiety. So the question isn't, should I be feeling a lot of anxiety? The question is, what's the skillful way to be relating to what's showing up here? So I think it's okay. You know, it's, we have to be a little bit careful about um, being a little too magical about karma. But I think it's okay to say, there's a lot of karma here. And by that we mean, when I'm in this situation, there's a lot of richness, a lot of emotional richness, a lot of stuff. Or I notice I'm really unaware. I notice my mind goes blank and I don't see clearly. You know, like my tendency is to be not very wise. My tendency is to be on autopilot here. And I bet if we looked back on our lives, you know, in hindsight, we say, oh boy, yeah, that was really, there was a lot of karma there in that event or that situation. But what we really meant is it was intense and the mind learned some lessons there. It saw some things that it hadn't seen before. Because that's really what karma is. It's just things showing up. And when things show up, especially intense things, then the crossroad, like I can relate with ignorance, I can relate with greed, I can relate with hate and perpetuate whatever the habit is, or I can notice the tendency to relate with hate or greed or delusion, but not take the bait. Oh yeah, that's just that tendency to kind of go dumb, but I'm not going to do it. I can just feel what that feels like, see what that's like, but make the effort to stay awake, or feel the impulse to get greedy here, because I really like this thing, but realize, oh yeah, that's just greed. And I know what that sets in motion. So I'm not going there. And that's how we sort of pass karmic tests, right? Where there's a lot of momentum to act out in an unskillful way, but enough wisdom to realize that there's that momentum and we don't take the bait. And we sort of, you know, again, these are sort of, you got to be a little careful with these phrases. You know, we pass the karmic test. We, you know, we... We survived. We could have gone down a hole, but we didn't. And it's appropriate. We feel light when we pass those tests. We kind of didn't do the stupid thing, didn't do the destructive thing. It's appropriate to feel some lightness. But if we personalize it, then we're just creating more karma. If we realize, oh yeah, this lightness, that's how it feels when the mind relates with wisdom with non-greed, with non-aversion, with non-delusion. 
it feels light. It feels free. Yeah, thanks, Nancy, for that. Let's leave it here. Just take a few seconds to let go of the words. Just enough time to take a couple breaths together. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.